What's going on with you today? Welcome to this week's ramble. Not too much at the head here, my friends. I've been having a little bit of technical difficulty being in an international space station with uh, with my editing software, so I'm not going to bore you with anything really at the head here other than to say tremendous guest this week. You may know him from Rush. You may know him from Underbelly. You may even know him from his recent exploits on Glitch, amongst many other things. One of the longest-serving actors of the last couple of decades. My guest this week on Coming Up Next, Roger Corsa. Enjoy the ramble, my friends, and don't forget, Cunt Podcast on Twitter, and Coming Up Next Podcast on the Facebook. Give us some social media love. Leave us a five-star review on the iTunes. Hit the subscribe button. It's usually in the top right. And get the show delivered to your telephone every week. Or as they say in America, every week, I think. Something. One of, the, one of the great things for me in doing these interviews is getting to actually delve into the backgrounds of people who have had uh, incredible careers. And I mean, you've had a television career that spanned, what, uh, 16, 17 years um, of pretty solid and consistent work. Um, but I didn't realise that you actually came from a background in musical theatre. Ah, uh, well, yeah, it was kind of one show. One show. <laughs> one, one show. That was that was it. That was my one. That was my one uh, <coughs> go at it. I, you know, I actually wanted to be a, a, a rock star. You know, like most sixteen, seventeen-year-old kids have a fleeting moment with. So. Yeah. And you were you were in um, in a number of uh, pub bands. Um. Yeah, bad ones. Shit, <laughs> shit ones. What's how do, uh, how do you define good and shit pub bands? Uh, well, I just I didn't have that much skill in music. I wanted to be a musician, but I think I, I like the idea of being a rock star. Uh, I probably would have fitted in really well with the, the whole reality vibe these days. Right. Of like <laughs> w- w- wanting to be the, like the idol without actually having to work for it. I think. <laughs> it right. kind of, I think I like you know being in the band, but actually kind of working on my instrument. Uh, you know, your voice, you know, I didn't really, I wasn't very studious yeah. trying to get better, you know what I mean? So, um, uh, <clears throat> but I did love, I love music, but I, no, I did a rock musical and then um, he kind of introduced me to, well, I got me an agent, one thing, and then after the, because it was a rock musical, there's not that many going around, you sort of, the other musicals are kind of more traditional and it didn't really fit that mould, so the agent sent me for, for castings. Mm. And, um, and the the musical that you did was Rent, and you were yeah. kind of cast from a pool of about six thousand people. Yeah, well, they had the usual suspects, um, and uh, then they I had open call auditions, even for 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 all the roles, pretty mm. much because that's the way the Americans kind of wanted it to do because it was an off Broadway show, and uh, the American creatives came out, um, and that was kind of their. The, the the way they wanted to run it, um, and, I, and I don't think the Australian creatives really liked that because I think the show was, 
you know, everyone knew it was coming out. I let this afterwards and people that were in other shows were kind of like almost handpicking, you know, people from other shows, oh, he'll be that role, she'll be that role. We all know who will be who. And the Yanks came in and just went, no, um, we want to throw it open to everyone and anyone, um, which I think kind of puts some of the noses out of joint. Um, huh. And that's the only reason I got a look in, really. Mm. It was, you know, I would never have been seen by kind of the traditional musical theatre kind of click of the, of the time, mm. uh, probably rightly so. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I had, you know, I couldn't dance, I, you know, couldn't, couldn't act and could barely sing. So um, they probably had a very good reason. But um, uh, I think they wanted people kind of, you know, something real um, in, in a role. So, um, so they, they threw it open. And the fact that, you know, I think they really liked the fact that my name was Roger, going for the character of Roger, I knew nothing about the show. Um, I played guitar, you know. Um, I remember my audition, actually. I rocked up to my audition that was at the POW in, in St Kilda, the Prince of Wales Hotel, on the balcony. And so you're on the balcony, so there's no reverb. You're out there, the trams are dinging and, you know, mm-hmm. going by. And, and you know, I, I, was, I was waiting to go go out there um, and I was sitting next to um, a girl uh, going for an audition. She had her own pianist and, like, you know, six or seven, you know, sets of sheet music to go out there and she, she knew all the songs and she sort of looks at me and I had my acoustic guitar. She goes, what are you going to do? And I said, oh, I don't know. <laughs> and she was kind of shocked. She was like, what do you mean you don't know? This is an audition. This is the, you know, the best audition that's come to town for X amount of years. And I just sort of went, oh, I don't know. I play in a band. I do originals. I do covers. I'll go out there and I'll just ask them what they want to hear. You know, I, I was just sort of taking it like if they say I'm shit, I don't care and yeah. that, that kind of attitude. Yeah, yeah. Um, which was, which is a, a, you know, kind of a self-preservation mechanism. You know what I mean? Sure. You're trying to act like you don't care, mm. which you, you know, you, you you do. But I went out there and um, and um, like I, I ended up seeing a, a cover. And I think it was a Bush song. You know, like a '90s grunge <laughs> Bush. You know, With song. It, it was it was um, it wasn't glycerin. It was Come Down. Right. Um, and uh, and I remember closing my eyes and sort of belting through a verse of a chorus and. And I looked up and, and the two guys were kind of talking to each other. So I just stopped and went, all right, you know, you've obviously heard enough and started packing up my guitar and kind of uh, going, oh, you know, you obviously think I'm kind of crap, so I'll, I'll leave you to it. And they all went, no, 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 quick, the star, no, we're just, I think they were just laughing at the fact that, you know, they actually came across a Roger, you know, going for the Roger role. So mm. not that I knew I was going for that role at the time. And they sort of whisked me um, through inside to another room and that's where all the kind of, the big wigs, the big table of, you know, eight people, the daunting kind of walk through a curtain and then there's sort of eight people at a big table. You're looking down their noses at you kind of thing. Yeah, but right. that was great. So, um, yeah. And then, um, you know, then it was off to Sydney you know, for a second round auditions and it was about five, di- five different callbacks and, and that was, uh, and then I, I, I got it. So, um, so that, that was kind of the start of it. So it was, um, it was totally not, not, not the normal way of getting into the industry, you know, go, going to... A night or a whopper or VCA or anything like that. Mm, you you studied media studies at um at Deakin, didn't you? Yeah, I did honours and that. So I, I wasn't super studious at school. I mean, I, I coasted through high school. Actually, you know, I don't tell this to my to anyone usually, but um, <laughs> my mother will hate me saying this. But I actually stayed back a year because I just didn't turn up in year ten. Um, and the, my high school went. You can either go to the school down the road and progress to so go to year eleven. And that was like two buses and 
pain in the ass. I was, or you, you get them, you know, you stay back if you want to stay stay with us. And and, and they thought that would scare me away, <laughs> but they didn't count on my laziness. I think so. I, <laughs> so I just repeated the year. There was about ten of us that repeated that year because we just didn't turn up that year. All all all, all a bunch of ten guys. Um, so I wasn't studious at all. And then I, I scraped into university only because my mother went down to the orientation day and kind of knocked on a door and <laughs> tried to get me in. So, and so I ended up doing media studies, um, which I enjoyed, and, but I didn't really um, hit my straps. I, I took a year off, did one year, took a year off, went and worked as a waiter and then sort of came back to school after that and then went, okay, this is actually what I want to do. And so then I ended up getting good marks, um, pretty good marks, and then they asked me to do honours the honours year, so I ended up doing the extra year. So um, it's actually a thing, thing of mine now. When you know, kids have got a lot of pressure to, to sort of at sixteen and fifteen to sort of know what they mm. they want to, do. and people sort of really judge them. And you know, that's that's fair enough if you're going to go on and study medicine, you've got to pick the right subjects, and I understand that. But you know, just because you're you're eighteen and you don't know what you want to be at, at thirty five doesn't mm. mean you're a you're a dropout or or so forth. So I mean, I didn't know until about 22, and you know, and then then I sort of went back to studies and and then you know moved on and got the honours degree in, in media studies. And I really wanted to work behind the camera. Um, you know, I, I, I sort of started to like post production. That was kind of where I probably saw myself going. And you know, knocked on a few doors, tried to get some. Uh, some jobs after out of uni and end up getting a job uh, with Artist Services, which um, they were the production company that did, uh, you know, the full frontals and the fast forwards. Yeah, yeah. Of the sort of eighties and nineties, mm. Steve Weisard. and they had a um, they had they had the subcontract business with uh, Crown Casino, and they were doing all their um, all their uh, little in-house videos. If you walk into the casino, there's all. You know, this bloke won a car, and so there's a little camera crew that go around and shoot yeah. all those little moments, and you got to cut them together, and you know, on kind of analog, you know, um, mixing boards and so forth. Um, and so, um, but they also, very sneakily, they also got all this great gear uh, they got crowned to pay for, uh, an avid, um, you know, av- avid out the back uh, to cut things on. Um, and they were cutting all these little Foxtel shows huh. at this little studio. I don't think the casino knew. Because <laughs> uh, <laughs> we were cutting the casino stuff with these analog mixes. And um, they were so, so Foxtel was pretty pretty new, and there's a show called In Fashion. And Rove McManus was a presenter, Hugh Jackman was a presenter, and Melissa Hoyer was a presenter. And they were cutting that, and we'd be, you know, we don't want our twenty bucks an hour, and all of a sudden we'd be hauled off to um, go and help crew a show for this Foxtel show, sort of on the books oh, of wow. Grand Crowd. So, um, so we'd go and do that, which was great fun. So, um, you know, we'd. It was very kind of you know fly by the seat of your pants. You'd sort of be audio guy one day, camera guy the next day. Mm. Um, you know, you'd come back and people would cut it. So um, um, that's where I sort of saw myself sort of progressing through. And because it was artist services and they did telly, I thought, oh, maybe there's a there's an avenue there to get into in, into television production. Mm. Um, and then actually at that job, there was a guy who did musical theatre and. He knew that I was actually sneaking off. Uh, I feel bad saying all this, but it is, you know, 18 years ago. And I don't think I'll get trouble. I was actually, we had to do the overnight shifts at the casino. Um, you know, that was part of the job. You know, once every four weeks, you'd do the graveyard shift and you'd just have to change all the sports screens. And I would sneak off and do gigs. So mm. I'd put it on my pilot and then at about 11 o'clock, go off and do, some, do, do a gig and come back at two <laughs> and then kind of, you know, collect both checks. Yeah, yeah. And, 
producers knew that I was doing that, and he you know, thought it was kind of funny. And um, um, he said, "There's this musical coming out called Rat. You'd, you'd be you'd be good for it. It's it's rock and roll, and you know." And I was a bit skeptical, but I thought, "Why well, not give it a go?" So, so I ended up going along on, on his advice and end up getting it. So I sort of moved on from that job. Um, I will say, my, my one claim to fame of that job, though, uh, and a few of my mates know this, is that <laughs> they were changing control rooms one night from an old temporary control room to a new one with, you know, and there was a, a patching difficulty. And um, so all the screens, we do everything on a touch screen. So, you know, ESPN to, the, you know, the sports bar, and, you know, you'd all be done on a touch screen. And they'd reset the system. And that day, someone had come in and asked me to dub a celebrity porno off a laser disc. Can you believe it? This is how old this. It was a celebrity porno, and I was in the control room, and I was like, "Oh, okay, I can go and use that machine over there, and you can do it." You know, don't just I don't want to know about it. And so he'd finished his shift, so I went, I went downstairs, checked something, came back, and he was doing it, and left it, and all of a sudden, like I started getting all these calls, and they were from all the bars in the casino because the whole system had reset, had gone haywire. So instead of the VCR being connected to the uh, the laser disc, mm. it sent it out to the floor. <laughs> so all of a sudden, I'm getting Roger uh, AV control. Can I help you? It's like, mate, we're in the uh, sports bar. We had the golf, but now we've got a porno playing. <laughs> yeah, we get quite a crowd. Oh well, their sales so, were probably never higher. So uh, it was like it's my second week into the job, and I just you know shat myself. Go, that's it. My career's over. But but we. We got around it, so you know. So um, you know, that was my interesting start to the. It was all over the radio as well, so it's like that was my sort of first uh, infamous little step into the industry, I suppose. Right. <laughs> it was uh, something you were talking about um, yeah. with the with the musical theatre and talking about the kind of, I guess, the click mentality and how when the Americans came, they they were willing to give. Uh, or, or not even willing, but they were insistent on giving new talent, uh, unknown talent, a chance as opposed to just going with the tried and true. And I f- it feels like this is kind of something that is almost emblematic in some sense uh, between the two different industries. The Australian industry can at times feel quite... Um, not what the right word is... Um, Look like a close shop, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, well, click. Yeah, I mean, but look, I can tell you when you're on the other side of a click, a click's great. <laughs> yeah. You know, you know what I mean? Like, because people have been, I've been accused of being in clicks now, you know, of getting, you know, a couple, a roll on of a couple of jobs in a row. And I've, you know, I've seen bits and pieces on social media saying, why do they give someone else a crack? And, and so I totally get it. Um, I think the thing about the musical is that they, they didn't want to hear traditional musical theatre voices and there's, they're, they're quite different, like a rock voice compared to a musical theatre voice. You know, that big vibrato traditional kind of, you know, you've just done Pirates of Penzance or, yeah, yeah. or, or something like that, you know. Um, it's a different kind of vibe. So I think they were opening up to different styles of voices. They wanted more of a rock voice instead of, you know, musical theatre people were used to doing musical theatre shows. So... Mm. Um, you know, and they wanted a rawness to it because it, there was there was a, a rawness to the show. Like, look, it's dated now, and people look back and kind of almost sometimes, you know, sort of snicker at the show. But you've got to take it in context of being re- really it was start started to be written late eighties, you know, and you know, it takes ten years to write a musical. Um, 
but yeah, they were just, they were just going for a rawer kind kind of feel. But um, but yeah, I, I, I've seen that before though with some Americans as well being a bit more open minded. But I suppose that's because they don't know anyone. Yeah, sure. In this country, so they sort of they sort of rock in, um, and go just show me everyone because you know it doesn't matter to us. Mm. They want to get the person that's going to be the right fit. Yeah, I mean, but I've been over to pilot season and and seeing that they do do like a and you know a producer loves a name. Yeah, you know? sure. So you go over there and you get, especially at my age, it's I find it hard, hard you know because I they put me for lead roles because I've done lead roles here. But then you you walk out of a an audition at a pilot season and you're like, oh, there's Luke Perry and there's that guy from, um, you know, Desperate Housewives and there's mm. a guy from Ben and you know there's a guy from Breaking Bad. And you're like, and then there's me from the Hyundai ads. Like, <laughs> like, so obviously I'm first on their list. Yeah. You know? So, um, you know, and you, and you find you, there, there was a lot of, you go for, you're supposed to be going for all these auditions, but all of a sudden, you know, something they get taken away the night before because they've gone out on offer, you know. Mm. Where, so, where you, I think some of the younger, this is generalizing, but you get for pilot season. I know we're digressing a bit here, but um, pilot season, the young guys do really well straight out of home and away because they're kind of on an even playing field. Because at 19, even the American kids haven't got that much experience. In fact, the Aussie kids have probably got more experience doing 200 episodes of Home and Away or Neighbours under their belt. Yeah. Well, we go over at I'm 43 now. It's different. They've got credits up the wazoo, you know. So mm. it's, it's getting harder to sort of crack it sort of without a, without a movie under your belt anyway. So, so yeah. Um, they have their clicks as well, but in a different way. Yeah, and I guess they hang their hats in different ways on the on the names of star power. Yeah, that's a producer's prerogative, you know. I get, we, you know, you get it. It's like, you know, look at the movie. You know, people go and see a stinker if it's got their favourite actor in it. Yeah. Yeah. So the producer still makes his money back. It might be a dog, but if they didn't have that that star in it, it you know, they would have lost all that money. So yeah, they stick him in there, I suppose. Well, it's very. It's all very calculated as opposed to being creative. Yeah, I mean, um, and and that's that's fine. I mean, people want popcorn films and big action films that sometimes, you know, you stick a Tom Cruise or a whoever in it and, you know, they're great, they do their job. But the movie was maybe so-so, but people go and see it because of him. But, uh, look, I think there's there's places for all those kind, kinds of movies. And I think sometimes it, it, in our this country that maybe we, I'm saying we need to make stinkers, but we, we need to be so worried about every every movie being so artistic yeah um, because I think <laughs> you're kind of stuck in made, the 90s well yeah, we, we kind of if we make a, a broad range of films that appeal to a broad range of people we might get more more general you know GP coming along to Aussie films yeah and that's what we want and then if they're coming along to those popcorn flicks maybe then they're more likely to see something that's a bit more left to centre mm. but if all we're giving them is we're making movies for other filmmakers and our own peers. Yep. You know, stuff that we see, and then we complain that no one sees our films. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's like, well, you're not connecting with your audience. Mm. You're, you're, it's sort of sometimes, and I went to film school, like sometimes, you know, people still in their late 30s can still be on a bit of a film school wank. And that's totally. harsh. You know, it's like not everything is about your... When you're spending other people's money as well. If you want to go and get all your own money, mortgage your own house and do it, then fine. But the thing is sometimes, you know, the thing is you want to go and do this stuff and you, 
you want to go and spend, even on a small Australian film, it's still going to be five million bucks. Mm. You know, it's not your money. So, well, it also doesn't evolve the industry. Yeah, I would just think. I think I just said, get people get people into seeing. I mean, look at Australian drama on telly before, let's say before before Underbelly. Maybe I think City Homicide before that started to get a, pull a few numbers, but there was definitely a lull in the mid nineties. Mm. People were watching the big American stuff and Aussie telly. I mean, people like All Saints were still around, and people you know they were getting some okay numbers, and but it was really. It was really, you know, Channel 7 had all the, the Lost and the Desperate Housewives from, and the Grey's Anatomies and all that kind of stuff from ABC America, that, that kind of vibe. And the CSI franchises were, were huge and, you know, 10 had all their kind of American stuff. Um, and that was would have been, you know, I'm sure, I'm guessing, but I'm sure the top 10 would have been, you know, ratings for the week would have been for full of, you know, American shows and news, you know. Yeah. And that changed after kind of underbelly, I said City Homicide got some numbers before that, but it, it changed. And then after Underbelly, you know, that kind of made it cool to watch our own accents again on telly. Mm. You know, I mean, it can't all be Underbelly, I know, I know that, but it just it did shift then because then you had a show like Pack the Rafters or totally different and number one show of the whole week. Mm. You know, and I think the same thing could happen for film. You know? Yeah, um, I agree. It's, but at the moment, you look at the films that kind of do well. They're the family flicks. Yeah, I was I was just thinking as you were saying before. For every every oddball, there's probably you know ten Samson and Delilahs, and that's not saying that's a bad film. It's a it's a great film, but it's not uh, really marketable in, or reputable no, in the same way that I'm oddball not saying is. They should be made. They absolutely should be made. I just think they should to have to balance them up to get. You know, I just think that. I suppose because we work on such a funding model. Yeah. You know, it, it, there's no kind of ex- external kind of investment or, I'm sorry, commercial investment. It's not the same people. studio system. No, there's not people, you know, throwing money into it because there's a big star thinking they'll get a return. Yeah. And, you know, there's obviously, there's, then there's obviously checks, checks and balances, things you have to do to get to get funding so certain films are going to get made. And they they have, you know, cultural significance and... And they're all very worthy films, but it's still, you still, I think, have to address the fact that people aren't seeing our films. People aren't mm. packing out a cinema like they are for the big Hollywood stuff. And it doesn't mean we have to compete on the same playing field and make, because we're not going to make a big Hollywood blockbuster, but we need to make maybe our own kind of films that have a broader appeal. So the multiplexes out in the west of Sydney and so forth, appeal to the, those punters as well mm. in some way, you know. Mm. Um, I don't know how you deal with that. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure either. Need to get Tom Cruise to relocate and change his accent well, and maybe, become a lot you know, cheaper. Tried, well, the dressmaker was good. I mean, that was kind of, you know, a good, had, had Aussie people that, you know, I suppose they brought Kate Winslet into that, but yeah. she was great. But um, Still, it's an Australian-made film. Straight made film, but I mean, they've kind of tried it with a few films to try and bring all our big names back. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's kind of what I suppose you're going to have to do, aren't you? Like bring bring three or four of the big guy bunk guns back and stick them all in a film, you know, mm. and get people to come along. But I also, I guess making it, making the then making the film commercially accessible. So, you know, making it a film that has 
a lot of set pieces or a film that has a lot of romance or, you know, something that is um, widely accessible. Yeah, or sometimes it's just story. I mean, it's sometimes it's just a good story, isn't it, that just connects um, connects with a lot of people. It doesn't have to be a huge budget. I'm trying mm. to think of something that... Um, I mean, the, the family films seem to work, you know, with the, your red dogs and your oddballs and your, you know, that kind of thing because it connects with people uh, on that level. It's something you take your kids to. I mean, obviously, yeah. you don't all you want to make, you know, go out and make 100 of those films, but that, that, that's, that's the niche. And then there's another niche. There's got to be something that's kind of adult but, but connects with everyone else without having to spend 16, you know, trillion dollars on, <laughs> yeah. you know, a sci-fi flick, an Aussie sci-fi flick or something, you know, mm. so. Well, I mean... I mean when we crack that, maybe you and, we, you and I can crack it, and we'll. And we'll yeah, we'll, uh, I agree. <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll we'll rake it in. Yeah, cool. I'll I'll write something, and you can be the star. Well, yeah, I'll just sell it. Oh, you, you I'll, sell I'll, it? I'll be the producer. Okay, cool. You can be the producer, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll get Tom Cruise and the dog from yeah. Oddball. You know what? Funny that, that that's not the that's not the worst pitch I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Tom Cruise goes back to school to ah. get his masters. So it's a bit Adam Sandler now. But how do you tie the dog into it? Uh, but there's got to be some money left to the dog. Some, so, you know, <laughs> the, and he hates dogs. Yeah. But he, but in order to get the inheritance, you know, the dog actually has the money at the moment signed over to him. Yeah. And, you know, they're, 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 the, they're the original odd couple. So he has, to, he has to overcome his fear of dogs <laughs> or his of hatred dog. of dogs to get the money and then it turns out that the dog's owner is a woman that he actually falls in love with. Man, this is layered. There you go. We just broke the box office. Just broke it. <laughs> <laughs> like a Kardashian breaking the internet. That's right. Um just to, to step backwards a little bit, I'm curious about this um, uh, music um, and, and how that kind of brought you into uh, a career as, a, um, as an actor. Do you remember, did you, did you kind of start out as a kid uh, performing, learning guitar, performing music or, was, uh, or were you a drama kid at school or any? Or? No, I wasn't really a drama kid at school. I mean, we did. I just did compulsory drama. Um, I don't think I did it in year twelve from memory. Um, I might have done it in year eleven, but it was pretty disorganised. Our drama. I think I. I think I was one of those. I think I did on the school musical, the school play. I might have been on the tech crew, where it's usually where all the nerds hang out. Um, so I think I was doing sound or something like that. Um, for the for the play, um, yeah no, uh, I think I just wanted to be in a band. I think I kind of like I, I mean it was I, I wasn't I was kind of floated across different kind of groups at the high school. You know I kind of I could I could hang with the popular kids. I could hang with the the kids that weren't so popular and the sort of alternative kids. And I sort of sort of floated between a couple of different groups. Um, and I was just sort of drawn towards music. A couple of kids were going to put a band together. They got guitars at 14 or 15 or something like that. And so I kind of asked if I could, you know, get one for a birthday or something like mm. that, you know, electric guitar. And we started kind of jamming in a garage, you know, like, and then it was all like, you, you, 
you play bass. I don't want to play bass. So I just got, you know, mum just bought me a six-string guitar, you know. Yeah. So yeah. it was like three guitarists and a drummer kind of thing. And then and eventually they didn't pick me up for rehearsal. We had an older guy who had, who had a band and they were like, well, we've kind of voted you out because you were the last in. Um, and, but if you want to be the singer, you can be in the band. So it was, it was kind of it. It was huh. kind of like... If you want to be in the band, you have to, you know, not be the guitar, a guitarist and be a singer. So I went, yeah, cool, sure. Just to be in the band. So just to be in the band, pretty yeah. much. So um, so that, that was kind of, it was like 16, I think. So 16 or 17. And then, you know, so we were just rehearsing and like the guitarist was a, used to lay carpet. So he was like a carpet factory, um, you know, a little warehouse thing. So we just go and sit up there and kind of jam from like six to midnight kind of thing and a couple of times a week and eventually started getting kind of pub gigs so it was kind of it was very cool to sort of you know underage go in and play in pubs and have a sneaky pot and, yeah <laughs> you know it was very yeah. it was very very grown up in rock and roll and you know go to high school on monday and go what did you do on the weekend oh you know you went and played footy oh well i went and played it at a pub and had a few schooners you know did you have so. groupies um yeah, surprisingly, no, it's, it's definitely uh, not that we weren't at that level. <laughs> we were at that level, we sticky cup. We, we played a lot of little gigs in kind of inner city Melbourne. Um, you know, and the stage, I remember the stage, I think it was the up in Empress Hotel, it could have been. I remember the stage being milk crates <laughs> wow. with, a bit of, with a bit of ply on it. And so, you know, they, it was, it literally would move back and forth the stage. Oh, wow. <laughs> So that was kind of, and then I remember we played. We literally played, rock and roll. Yeah, literally rock and roll. And then we played um, the, the Punters Club, which is now gone. And and across the road, um, what's the one across the road? Uh, it's still there. Um, uh, the other one? Across the road, yeah. And um, I remember getting a beer can thrown at my head and landing. And it, was, it wasn't full, it was half full. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it wasn't glamorous. There was no groupies. Yeah. Was, so um so yeah we did that and um and that first band up until probably about 18 or 19 and then sort of and then I was sort of you meet other people and kind of you start sort of jumping from to other bands. Mm. Do you remember the first time that you ever uh entertained someone or a group of people or something maybe it may have been when you were a bit younger or um when you started this band where you kind of got that feeling, that kind of adrenaline rush or that kind of energetic experience that made you feel like this is something that I want to pursue for the, the rest of my, my life? Um, yeah, uh, that kind of that, that being on stage, the bug, the, you know, the applause or the admiration or people telling you you've done a good job. Yeah, uh, it would have been that, that, that kind of time. I mean, we used to drag the kids from school around, like especially in kind of the year 12, when people were kind of could all get in, um, you know, we'd play a couple of local pubs. So we were out the, the Burbs out in Doncaster. So we'd play a couple of local Doncaster Shopping Town Hotel when, you know, up at the front bar, which used to be um, a little rough, more rough and ready than it is now, I think. Um, and, and so they kind of all come along. So when you go to school, it was like, oh, we all went and saw you in the band on yeah. the weekend. So that was kind of like sort of... You know, you suddenly rose to a, you know, a little higher level. You know, <laughs> new social status. <laughs> the social status. So, well, that was kind of cool. And um, 
I think with you know with you know everyone always talks about you being a band, you getting band for the girls, and it was um if you, I never I never had I was never really cocky and super confident with with girls, but if you're in a band, they seem to, you know, come up to you, which made it a lot easier. Yeah, right. To talk to girls. Damn it, should have been uh, in a band. So I mean, not the girls from school because everyone knew everyone. Everyone was you know great friends, but it was kind of like you know other other people at the pub, you know, mm. where if you're out with your mates, this is obviously when we're eighteen going out. You know, other mates would, you know, have no fear just sort of walking up to a complete stranger and saying, I don't know what. It was always a mystery. What did you right. say to him? You know, <laughs> this is where I thought being in a band was great because that, that, that was uh, all, fear was all taken away. So, right. I, I wanted to Sorry, go on. No, that was, one, that was kind of a, you know, it was a great kind of, the, being, being the front man was a great icebreaker, you know. You didn't have to do much groundwork. Mm-hmm. I did karaoke for a long time every week, and I did not have that experience. Yeah, well, you know what? In between bands, <laughs> I used to do a lot of karaoke. I think, uh, yeah, no, no groupies for karaoke. Um, no, <laughs> <laughs> not so much. No, they used to. When well, that first karaoke used to first start, oh, they, people used to make money out of it. I remember they used to. They were they weren't everywhere, and people they'd be winning big money at the pub. They'd have these big kind of ta- like talent shows. Yeah, I won like I won like a hundred bucks a few times doing it on like a Thursday yeah. night. I went to a state final doing yeah, there was a spoken kind of word song. Yeah, yeah. Not anymore. Like now, it's just you know, you've been you've been to a real Japanese karaoke. Like, no, uh, I like doing it with an audience. Yeah, <laughs> well. They just have like oh, we ended up someplace in the cross, and it was like karaoke downstairs, and you get sake and everything, and you get to, and it's kind of the reverbs kind of on about eleven, right? Constantly, <laughs> so and everyone kind of has their own little songs going on at once in the different booths, and so it's just you can just imagine this wash of five different songs all overly reverbed and people mm. drunk and sake, and it's just a an absolute nightmare. There's no prizes being given out then. <laughs> The prize for most reverb. Yeah, that's all right. Yeah. November rain echoing oh. through every room. What was your uh, What was your karaoke song of choice? Look, I, I'm going to come out. I'm going to be. I'm going to be pretty proud and say I'm. I'm definitely a, a, a you know a Barnsley fan, a Bogan Barnsley fan, and I know it's totally uncool. And it was uncool to be kind of post '84. I think you know to be a Barnsley fan, but you know. I try and go and sing some of these songs, I suppose, at a karaoke, but never hit the notes. So, uh, what would I probably do? I'd probably, in, in the pocket, because if you want to go and do things that you, you sound okay, it was probably something a bit lower. So, you, like like a John Cougar Mellicamp song was kind of in the pocket, or mm. a little bit, little bit lower down. And, and then, obviously, when, you know, Pearl Jam became commercialised enough to be in karaoke sets, <laughs> <laughs> you could go and punch out a... You know, a Pearl Jam song or Bit of like even that. flow. Yeah, I think they've had like Jeremy or something like that. I thought it found kind of strange for a karaoke. Yeah. Sing about like kind of like a, a kid gone nuts at school, kind of like a karaoke. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I used to I used to like doing Shut Up Your Face because it had crowd interaction. Uh, yeah. Um, Joe Dolce? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Actually had him on the show not long ago as well. God, that's... Uh, what What... Geez, what year was that? Eighty must have been eighty three or four. Well, I think it was the seventies, even. <laughs> no? Early eighties. Okay. I'm, I'm, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I might cut this bit out. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
No, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty sure I was at primary school. I reckon it's early 80s. I reckon, I reckon 84. Right. That's my bet anyway. That was the year um, I was born. There you go. There you so go. It's, it's, all, it's all the olden days to you. Yeah. Everything. We used to have, used to have, used to have a couple, some of those um, uh, songs that, you know, you get your LP, your greatest hits LP, you know, like 84 with a bullet, all these kind of compilation LPs. Yeah, right. And, and you'd have kind of comic stuff for every kind of year and then there would something that would, would kind of hit. So you'd have um, Australiana, mm. you know, um, which, which which is a big hit, you know, all that kind of, uh, what was it, uh, all that, the puns about, about Australia. Um, oh, that was, um, was it Ostentatious? Ostentatious, yeah. 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 Wait till gum leaves and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. And then also you had um, George Smelovich, I'm Tough. Yeah, that, yeah, that one? No, I don't know that one. I'm tough. How tough are you? You know, I drink cordial straight from the bottle and all this kind of <laughs> stuff. You know, I wasn't breastfed. I went straight into cappuccinos. So it was just it was kind of like, I'm tough, I'm tough, how tough. And it was a recording and it kind of made number one, you mm. know. And there was, it was uh, and then kind of sharp your face was kind of, you know, a novelty song. There was a bunch of them back then. We were all simple folk back in the 80s. Yeah. <laughs> it didn't take much to entertain us back then. We didn't have the, the, you know, the interwebs. Yeah, no, there was none of this YouTubing. No, none of that. Certainly no podcasting. No. We call it radio. So we had we had five songs aside on LP and, God, you know, we were happy with that. <laughs> Every 30 minutes you'd get up and turn the record turn over. Turn over with your hand, no remote control. Yeah. Um, so after you did Rent, uh, you started this pretty epic career in TV. Oh, I think when you look back at a, at a resume, it looks epic. It's been good, but there's been lots of gaps in, mm. in between. And But yeah, look, I've been lucky. There was a... Uh, I mean, the last kind of four, four to five years has been very lucky. But yeah, so sort of after... After Red... Like, I had a big gap. Like, the that's... 99, then at 99, I got my first TV gig, which was a, just a guestie, one week guestie on Beastmaster, which is something they shot up in Queensland. Mm. And so that every kind of, a lot of Aussie actors, you know, floated and float out in the guest roles. Yeah. And they um, had, you know, a couple of, obviously they had their regulars. Uh, so yeah, I did, I did Beastmaster, which was, uh, it was like a week up in the Gold Coast. And that was incredibly incredibly great pay and you stayed on the Gold Coast and got this like three bedroom amazing kind of suite that was my first gig and it totally spoiled me because you think oh this is what telly's like yeah, wow. and that's not what telly's <laughs> no. like at all so it was like you know a couple of days and a day in between so you know you went you know went for a swim and then did a day off and you know per DMs and people drivers to pick you up and all mm. this kind of stuff um no, there was nothing like that uh, that usually goes on. That's because it was half American money, you see. So. Yeah, right. And, uh, and then I kind of had a year of kind of – I just sort of got that one just out of luck and that was purely on the way I looked. I think I had a, the right, a little beard or something going on. It was just right for the character and it was like, mm. yeah, we don't care how you act, just you look right, um, you got the gig. And then I had kind of a year of auditioning and, and just – Getting nothing, but I, I'd never been to acting school. I mean, I'd, I'd worked with the kids at, at acting in the acting classes at, at, uh, at uh, Deakin because we would interact with them if we were shooting our little student films or whatever, and, and use the guys from the drama department. And but 
you know, I was really green at auditions. Like I wouldn't learn the lines, and you know, you know, went to agent, pulled me aside, said, "You are learning those lines, aren't you?" I went, "Does that help?" <laughs> you know, <laughs> she goes, "Yeah, a little." Uh, so, so I would just learn. I mean, it's been a year, pretty much. Just, that was kind of my kind of you know acting class or workshop. You know, I was just kind of auditioning and auditioning, and because I'd done a lead role in Rent, that just that I was lucky enough to keep getting called in for lead roles. Mm. Um, because I'd done well on stage, so the casting directors were, you know, would kind of give me that shot. Um, and I'm trying to think what the first thing I think it was Water Rats would have been the next thing that I got, um, and that was to to um, to be a reoccurring character for the next year, and I'm going to bring me in for the last four episodes um, as a new detective, and it's got to buddy up a little bit with Aaron Pedersen. Because Steve Bisley was leaving, and so they were going to kind of kill him off in the last episode, and then it was going to be me and Aaron, kind of, you know, the two young guns. Mm. Um, and then they canned the show. <laughs> so, so they, uh, you got about four episodes out of it. So they obviously saw what you know the future was, and they went, "Let's just pull the pin now." So uh, no, D Smart was pregnant as well, so she was going to she couldn't come back. She got to go like, do a one day a week or something. So I think it was all kind of falling apart. But um, but they were joking on on set. They were basically going calling it nicknaming it Office Rats because um, I think every year the that the, the it started out of like a sixteen day shooting schedule for two episodes and it got down to about eleven. <laughs> You know what I mean? So, and they had full, used to have full time second unit in those early years and all those great underwater shots and everything. And it was just less and less and less. So, um, I think they kind of they called time on that one. But that was a great little uh, experience. But what was probably, it was probably a blessing in disguise because I just wasn't ready for a lead role, mm. you know. And then after that, I, um, it was a bit of time, I think I had nothing for you know, half a year because I wasn't really doing stage or anything else in between or co-ops because I hadn't gone to school. I didn't really have that little, you know, acting school click where people were putting on co-ops or something to you yeah. know, go and do stuff. Um, so I got Macleod's Daughters um, after that. Um, and that was, you know, obviously a little kind of recurring supporting role. And that was probably exactly what I needed to just kind of working with other actors that had had, you know, the weight of the show on their shoulders and, and just kind of learn just how to do telly, like how to prepare your scripts, how to know where you are when you're shooting two episodes, um, you know, out of order. Um, mm. Just to know, where, you know, where, where you're at, what, what, what directors expect and, you know, what your role is, you know, in the whole thing. Um, and just kind of watch and learn and, and make your mistakes. But I, I, but I, I, you know, look back and cringe at all the stuff that I did because I was kind of, I was kind of, you know, I was, I was learning on, on camera, which is kind of really old school mm. way of doing stuff, you know, I, I was trying things out and then seeing it back and going, "Well, that was wrong." Wish that was just on a handy cam uh, <laughs> instead of you It'll know. Be on YouTube now, though. Yeah, so it's, so um, yeah, but you learn fairly quickly because you obviously don't want to look like a total schmuck. So you're like, "Oh shit, won't do that again. That yeah. was too big, or that wasn't big enough, or, or what have you." So I, that was kind of my, you know. Sort of my, uh, I suppose, almost like my, my acting class at that, that show. Mm. I don't think anything could probably prepare you practically um, for what it would be like. I had uh, Jane Allsop on the show not long ago and she 
you know, sort of went straight into Blue Healers into this really big role and um, having to learn however many scenes to shoot a day. And I just don't think there's a way that you can prepare for that kind of um, experience without just doing it. Yeah, baptism of fire kind of thing. Because, um, I mean, people, even people that come out of the school, the school system, and, you know, I saw, I saw, would see them come onto set, you know, and they have all their processes, which are, which are fantastic. But it's just, you know, maybe in a film, there's time for, for people to, the directors to, you know, go through everyone's, you know, process and how they mm. like to, to work. But really, unless you're the lead character, they're not going to indulge you that yeah, time. Yeah. Like if you're coming on for your 50 word and going, I just need this moment, they're like, no, we're <laughs> stand there and say the lines. And, yeah. you know, it's, it's about the, the horse jumping in the background, um, you know, uh, that shot and the, and, and the pretty pictures, not about necessarily what you're saying. Yeah. Um, and you sort of learn, oh, it's not all about me um, <laughs> pretty, pretty quickly. Mm. Um, so, it's, so you end up having to learn. I mean, I've, I've gone through phases where you kind of, you got, that quick way of television kind of makes you a little bit blase and like, and then you come back again and go, no, I've got to find a way. You know, you feel like you're a little bit in the sausage factory, mm. some of the gigs. And then, and then you sort of come back and you go, no, no, I've got to learn how to work efficiently and quickly and understand that everyone, you know, this is telly, Australian telly, and it works fast. But also, you know, if something really is important, that, that that's when you play your card and you go, no, we need to stop and, work this out and make sure mm. it's right. But you can't do it all the time. Yeah, That's the thing. Some people want to do it all the time and it's not going to work. So, Well, I think that's where it becomes indulgent. And I think that's something similar to what we're talking about before with feature films where it becomes about the artist. I'm doing air quotes for this <laughs> visual medium. Yeah. Um, but it becomes, it, it, it ceases to be about making something for an audience and it becomes about the person, the individual. Yeah. Uh, and, and again, that's a fine line because, you know, some great stuff has come out of, you know, self-exploration and, and people really bearing their soul, which is, is about them in some way. But it is, it's, it's kind of when you, when you see it, you know it. <laughs> when, you, when you sort of see it, mm. you go, ah, oh, that's great. You know, that's great work. And, you know, you really got to bed, bed their soul, and that's kind of uber self indulgent. And it's not until you see so you can, you know, it's hard to describe which the difference between the two, I suppose. Um, I guess it's what are you serving? Yeah. Um, well, you know, you, you would think your audience, that's why you make tally, you mm. know. Um, I mean, if you're an auteur and it's your script and, you know, you've written it and you're kind of putting it together and. It's mm. it's different. It's a different thing then. And your name's Quentin Tarantino. Yeah, well, even as a short, like you do, you do shorts. I mean, that's, that's, a, yeah. it's, it's, it's a different, you know, it's a different audience. But I think, when, I mean, a television show, a commercial television show, when you've got, you got to know what what the beast is. Yeah. You know what I mean? The difference between even doing an ABC show and doing a commercial show is, you know, they want different things, mm. obviously. So you. you Everyone's always striving to do the best job they can. There's no doubt. But you, you know, if you if you keep complaining and you're bashing your head against the wall, you know, asking for something that's too too arty or too self-indulgent, you know, big commercial telly show, it's not it's not going to happen. You know. Yeah. And um, speaking of uh, big 
commercial television shows seems like a good segue into um, talking <laughs> about Underbelly. Um, yeah. I've had uh, Damo Walsh Howling and yeah. um, Cat Stewart on as well. And they've both spoken uh, glowingly about the experience of creating the show. Damo in particular talked about how it felt like one of those moments where everything just lined up and everyone just got along really well and knew that they were creating something really special. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah. There was, it was just a, it was a perfect storm. There was a whole bunch of reasons. I mean, if you read uh, who killed channel nine or know anything about the Eddie Maguire kind of story with the do channel nine, that, that had uh, an effect on it. You know, he commissioned the show, mm. you know, he was kind of the nine, um, boss at, at the time. Uh, it's nine's very Sydney centric, uh, was back then was, you know, so the book says, um, um, and then he was on his way out, but they kept that show on the roster. But I think from memory, no one expected great things of Underbelly. It was kind of that Melbourne crime show mm. and it was probably a bit too risque and a bit raw and, and, you know, and a bit, a bit of a nine thirty show, but they wanted to date 30. I'm like, I'm kind of guessing, but this is kind of the vibe that I got. Yeah. You know? Um, cause they had other shows. I think the clouds were still going and, and, um, you know, sort of more mainstream kind of shows were going. Um, but we, we would we would start to shoot shows. I think Nine kind of left us alone a little bit because I think they kind of thought it's not going to rate, it's not going to do well. It's only going to be a Melbourne audience. The rest of Australia won't connect to it. Mm. We'll probably put it on eight thirty. It won't rate. Whack it on late, and we'll just run its course. It'll go away. Um, I think that was kind of what they were thinking. I mean, I'm I'm guessing. Um, but we were shooting stuff, and you know, I remember, vividly remember um, shooting scene in Brighton Cemetery where the cops were going to take down two hitmen um, going who were we were tipped off they were going to um, go for one of the Mario Condello character who walked his dog through the through the cemetery and front page of the Herald Sun or something that day as we were sort of sitting down in between shots was the guy we're about to take down the real person you know um, front page of the paper and he'd taken a bag of his own excrement um, to court, hidden it, and then you know when the a verdict or something was you know writ, uh, was was said said or um, was handed down to him, he sort of flung it at the judge, and um, <laughs> wow. and you know, this guy was kind of a, a, a bit of a, a nutter, but it was like it's front page news, and it, it, I think people were then people were realising we were shooting the show, and so there was this interest, and it just sort of started to snowball. Because all those things were happening in real life, mm. um, and Melburnians especially all had an opinion on all these these guys. You know, like um, if they even found out you were shooting this show, it was you know because it was in the papers. Um, everyone had a story about how they knew Moran or how they knew Carl Williams, or they'd met you know they'd seen something at a bar one night. And because these guys were so brazen, you know, the old school. Well, you know what we were told: the old school kind of underworld would kind of take care of their own, and and kind of had a bit of an understanding with the cops that, you know, we'll take care of our own and we won't bother you and maybe you can turn a blind eye to certain things. So these younger guys coming in um, selling pills mm. would rock up to a, a nightclub and just sort of open fire on a bouncer that owed him money and there were 60 people standing in a line. It was, you know, 10 o'clock at night. It's totally you know, different to anyone, what anyone else had done before instead of, you know, you know, they, they we're driving him out to the bush and digging a hole and making it all kind of quiet and discreet. You know? Yeah, so, yeah. The government went crazy, like that, you know, and 
you know, getting tough on crime, and you know, I would imagine all the talkback radio went, went nuts, and so it became a huge thing, you know. So, um, and then when they banned the show, you know, just it made it even more infamous. It was just, it was just the perfect storm, wasn't it? You know, what you stories of people driving up to Albury from Melbourne to get the. <laughs> I may or may not have got my girlfriend at the time to bring a copy back from the Gold Coast. Yeah, so people, you know, like people doing this business, you know, sort of on the Murray, you know, yeah. in a brand new bag. It was just <laughs> kind of perfect, you know. Um, and it's still rated huge even without the Melbourne audience, you know. So, mm. um, like, I actually got American representation because of that show. Um, like from a big American agent and I hadn't even gone to America because it was number two download on Torrance. Yeah, right. And, and some assistant had gone, what the fuck is this show? Because it was like, you know, it's beating these three other shows, American, big American shows. And so the agent mm. kind of sought out, you know, what is this freaking show? You know, it's so popular. And it was all Victorians. Yeah, yeah. You know, downloading it, you know, lots of like hundreds of thousands of Victorians downloading it illegally. Um and on the pure fact of that, rang my agent and said, oh, I want to represent him, you know. Um, so just because of that, how infamous the, the show was. But mm. um, uh, but it was a, it was a, it's a real experience when, for instance, uh, I mean, Kat would have told you this, that um, Roberta came looking for her on set one day. Um, so Kat actually wasn't there, but Roberta came kind of knocking on the caravan doors on the, you know, all the, the trucks on the side of the road. Where the fuck is she? You know? Right. Kind of asking where Cat Cat wasn't shooting a scene there. Everyone's going, "Oh, is that what you're talking about? You got the wrong show." You know where, <laughs> you know, where where Stingers or something. You yeah, know? yeah. Um, but she's like, "Oh, it's something." Uh, someone was saying something like, "I oh, hope you don't get no scrubber to play me or something like that." Right. Which was funny because it was like, and of course that that would be totally inappropriate. Yeah. <laughs> um, but. Uh, yeah, uh, and like, the, the the great thing I uh, you know I got to meet a lot of the Piranha guys. One in particular, who my character was based on, probably eighty percent of his kind of story, and then they, they kind of condensed a few other characters' um, experiences in there as well. But that was kind of great to, to talk to him. They were all there, and and um, to kind of look at it more than more than just just cops and robbers show, like where yeah. there's guys and the bad guys. Like they tell stories where it's just like it's almost they're all in the same industry. It's not so black and white. Yeah, I'm not saying the, the cops weren't dirty. They wanted to take these, you know, do their job. But it wasn't like that bravado and that kind of, you know, you see interrogation scenes with cops where it's all kind of, you know, chest stuck out. <laughs> you know, like slamming of the phone book on the, on the table and, yeah, you know, yeah. threatening kind of thing. There were no John Wayne characters here. Well, it's a, you know, we'd go around. We'd know that, you know, uh, Judy Moran was doing, you know, uh, dodgy, dodgy shit. But we'd go around and have a cup of tea with her. Mm. And just go, how are things, Judy? And what's going on? And she go, oh, you know, this, that, and the other. They just this have is the real, the, these are the real yeah, people. Yeah, that's a really civil kind of chat. But all the while, just kind of, it's just kind of like saying we're here and we're watching, but being totally civil at the same time. You know, does that make a great scene? Like a long, you know, two cups of tea and a scotch finger biscuit and talking mm. about the weather? Probably not going to make it into television drama, but that's kind of what, they did things like that. They also told me scary stuff that they'd have to drive home a different route from St Kilda Police Station, from St Kilda Road, um, you know, the head of the, the, the cops of Melbourne there, um, because they get followed. Yeah. So they take a different route home every night because people were getting followed and pot shots taken at them. So yeah, right. it was very kind of real, you know, for them as well. So, 
so yeah, it was a, it was a, it was a, it was a pretty, yeah, amazing and surreal kind of experience. Mm. Did you did you have any uh, strange experiences with um, some of the real life people, either during or after the show? No, uh, not me, because I, I was more concerned with the people playing real life characters. Yeah, right. And I, I, my, my, I was a fictional character because I was, a, I was a makeup of a couple of real guys. Mm. That's why you never. That's why, well, maybe not the only reason. Maybe they didn't want me. But you know, in the the reboot, they couldn't. Steve Owen couldn't appear in that mm. because he's a character. He's not a real life person. So, I think it would have been an underbelly if, you know, if that. Um, what was that? What was the reboot called? Um, but. Um, it was the Tony Mockbell one, Fat Tony. Yeah. Yeah, they couldn't, any of the fictional cops couldn't come across. So it was all new cops. Right. Because um, it, was, it, was, it was deemed a different show. Um, I think they still want to do with a rebate. I think. <laughs> so they've done their 60 episodes of Underbelly, so they had to rename it. Yeah. Um, uh, but um, I think some of the guys were apprehensive. I mean, most of the guys couldn't meet the, the real guy because guys because they were dead um, <laughs> but you know Simon Westaway um, you know uh, met Mick Gatto yeah, a couple right. of times um, he said it was a bit daunting but they weren't phased but I think some of the people kind of enjoyed being thrust into the spotlight I don't think it really glorified phased. celebrity types uh, they made, made the turn them in people into only help their cause Really? Yeah, sure. They kind of they kind of liked it, so I don't think the actors got any any flack over it. I think they were kind of you know, you know, they were kind of celebrated for it. Mm. Um, and I guess after that, you've kind of had this really great consistent run of shows and working on things like um, like Rush, and um, more recently things like The Beautiful Lie and Glitch. I mean, Glitch was a very different role for you. Um, than stuff yep. that you'd done previously was that was that a really exciting opportunity to kind of sink your seat, sink your teeth into something different? <clears throat> yeah, that's that's all Emma Freeman who um, gave me the opportunity to do that. Uh, we just worked on party tricks uh, just before then. I'd worked with Emma way back. Um, we have mentioned it. The show called Last Man Standing, which was done um, just after the clouds. Um, so 2004 or five, we did that, and that was my first kind of lead role. Um, and that was the days when I made 22 episodes mm. um, straight off the bat. But I worked with Emma there. So I've worked with Emma on a lot of different shows all the way through. Um, and so I'd worked with Emma on Rush and um, on a couple of different shows and just done party tricks. And that John Doe character, which, you know, he didn't say much, but they were looking for someone. I think originally they were kind of looking for maybe someone slightly younger and maybe. <laughs> a better physique um, like you know what I mean like they wanted that kind of you know uber fit kind of kind of cat and I, and I think Genevieve might have had she was like oh, I want an actor I don't want you know mm. um, you know who, who's this because I've got to do some you know a lot of scenes with, with this this, cat, this uh, character mm. so um, you know obviously I did not have the physique for that character and so I think Emma, Emma rang my agent and so I went is he prepared to put in a bit of work and um, maybe transform and it'd be good for him coming off the back of something like Party Tricks, uh, you know, um, to do something 
darker and and transform your body a little bit and and um, trans, you know and change perceptions of what you can possibly do. So mm. I, um, so that was great, and um, I really thank Emma for giving me that opportunity because it was uh, it was good, and I needed to lose a few kgs. So it was uh, nothing. <laughs> you like ended it. up losing what eight kilograms or something. On the scales, eight, but it would have been probably more. I was at a good paddock and party tricks, you know, like politicians drink a lot of red wine and, you know, so I thought I'd get into that <laughs> into character. So I Do, wasn't doing much, go method. Yeah, I wasn't doing much exercise and, you know, I think I was getting the dad bod well and truly working. And um, so I was, you know, because, I mean, obviously you, you, you put on a bit of muscle when you, if you're throwing weights around. So mm. I probably lost eight on the scale, but probably lost more like 10 kilos of body fat, I suppose. So Yeah, right. Um, you looked. You was, looked very. I didn't recognise you for the first few scenes uh, yeah. that that you were in. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I probably I didn't get to where I actually wanted to to get to. I wanted to go, to, but I didn't have the time to do it. But um, um, it wasn't like the guys in the three hundred. You yeah, know, yeah, sure. <laughs> Sully, so Stapleton and Cal Mulvey did the, the second 300 and they got through, through this sort of intense sort of eight-week boot camp. It's, yeah. You know, we did that at this lockdown, you know, sort of thing for eight to ten weeks of, you know, just grueling stuff and they come out looking like that, you mm. know. It's actually not CGI. That's actually how they look. Uh, <laughs> but I didn't get I – I wasn't that hardcore, you know. There was, there was a few temptations when you get home. So, But I was pretty good. Um, but there was also a very creative – Makeup as well. It's amazing how 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 um, slimming mud can be. Yeah, right. Put it put in the right places. Just put a bit <laughs> darker mud around the love handles to make them disappear a bit. And you know what I mean. <laughs> a little bit of mud, kind of de- defining the chest a little bit. <laughs> beauty <laughs> like, mud. It was. It was uh, defining yeah, yeah beauty mud. So so yeah, but that was um it was great. Look um, I mean, I think that's coming back. I mean, I don't know if. They want me to come back. I guess it hasn't been worked out yet, but yeah. um, sure, glitch is coming back. Oh, that's cool. It's a really, it's a one of the better um, Aussie shows. Well, better is the wrong word, but it's definitely one of the. Uh, it was a unique. It's a unique concept to yeah. Australian TV. And look, I know sometimes uh, you know talking to Louise Fox and and, and the guys from from um, Matchbox. You know, they pitched that show a long time ago. Mm. Um, before you know the returned and these type of shows were were on the air because mm. I know some of, some of the, you know, the comments have been, oh, you know, we just copy genres and it's like, actually, they actually come up with this quite a long time ago. It Just the way it works here um, is that, you know, to get the green light takes a, a long, long time to get put on the back burner and yep. uh, until there's a kind of a slot that opens up, um, you know, the, they, they can't, they can only produce so many shows a year, and then I suppose if a couple are going okay, you're not going to get a go. So mm. I put on the back burner for a couple of years, and you know, um, you know, by the time we 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 shot it and hit the air, some other shows had kind of picked up on that that end of the the, the genre. You know, you got your Walking Dead kind of end of the, the scale, and then you got kind of our end of the scale where it was less about eating brains and <laughs> just more about relationships. I mean, Glitch could have been. Um, you know, a, a UFO people taken away mm. for two years and come back. It's the same kind of thing. It's about when they suddenly reappear and everyone's moved on. Yeah. How you know how those relationships are affected? Yeah, the hook's uh, kind of incidental. It's not. Uh, yeah, it's I not mean, dependent. Yeah, and obviously, you look. You know, we did. There was a 
there's one bit of CGI, you know, in there, which is when one of the characters, the Marco character, the um, you know, sort of disintegrates on the bridge, but that's kind of the only mm. kind of spooky CGI trick that was was kind of used in the whole thing. The rest is about relationships, you know. Mm. Um, which and, is what, and which is the, what it should be about. Yeah, and then, and then obviously for the characters that are a bit older that don't have any people that knew who they were, it's, it's about discovery and, you know, about just discovering what, you know, why, what, what their lives are about and what they've done and maybe redemption. Mm. Um, you said uh, in, about losing your, your, or that you were getting a, um, a dad bod while you were uh, working on party tricks. And you've recently had your fourth child. Yeah. Third child with um, your current wife. Is that right? Current suggesting there'll be another one? Is that what you... No, there, but there was... There was it's a... my current one. There's, there's also the future one and there's the... No, um, yeah. I've got, a, I've got uh, one older daughter who's uh, 13 and then I have, uh, have three kids. Um, I was saying to you before, we, that's why we, I was a bit late talking to you today because we, we managed to get the, the hat trick of... Uh, um, kids being sick last night, so which is any other parents who uh, <laughs> go through that, you know, understand what it's like to be, you know, up every half an hour for a different child being sick. So um, mm. that's always fun. Yeah. Uh, one thing I'm I'm quite fascinated by is um, is this idea of maintaining relationships in the entertainment industry and um, different people's different experiences, and I'm sure it's across the board, not just entertainment industry struggles in relationships but um there there seems to be kind of two sides of the coin um one is that there's a quite deep and profound connection between the two people and there's this understanding and this kind of support of um the individual's careers and then on the other side there's kind of a misunderstanding or a not really getting because the entertainment industry you know showbiz can be quite grueling and taxing in terms of the hours that you work and particularly if you're an actor you know you might be intimate with other actors on screen and and these kind of um i guess unusual career uh things yeah i mean it's definitely it's not a normal job um and you know i mean with the i mean people i get asked that a lot about doing love scenes or you know being intimate with with other people um, besides your partner, and it helps that my, my that Renee is you know an actress as well. She's done musical theatre for years and um, some telly gigs and and you know a lot of stage um, stuff. Uh, so you know she's been in the same position. Um, now stage kisses compared to TV stuff can be a bit different. Stage you can probably especially musicals you can fake it a bit more, mm. um, um, and TV you do to a certain extent. Um, look, I've done some racy stuff. I mean, Last Man Standing, there was a little bit of racy stuff, but um, but it's probably almost, you know, it's not like it's some, you know, really out there kind of sexual, you know, you know, film where, you know, it's really kind of hardcore, risky kind of stuff. Mm. Um, I never had to sort of do that, which, which you know, <laughs> would probably be a little bit confronting for any relationship. Yeah. Um, it's all about it's all about um, trust, and I suppose also just, I always just let Renee know what's going on. And half mm. time she goes, "Oh, whatever, I don't care," you know. Yeah, sure. um, <laughs> and you know, more than likely she she knows if it's regular characters. They, she's met the other 
you know, act the actress or, mm. um, and it's all fine, you know. And also she knows that like th- those things cut together like you've been rolling around for someone for 15 minutes continually, you know, to the point where you both might get a little bit hot on the collar. But the reality is it's, it's, it's usually kind of like 30 seconds stop, mm. move a camera, you know, change a light, lie there kind of thing talking about, you know, the weather or the football or something and then yeah. back in, you know, and you've got a boom swinger, you know, you're in some like you're in some apartment where there's fifteen lights in there, so the boom swinger's over the top of you and he's dripping sweat off his nose. <laughs> onto the middle of your back. A sandwich. <laughs> sort of in the middle of your back, you don't know, sweat coming off the you know, the, the grip hanging over you or something like that. So yeah, it's not as sexy as what you would, you know, uh, imagine. Mm. So. And uh, uh, do you think that trust is really paramount? Um, to sustaining, I mean, you're, as you said before, you guys have had three kids together and you've been together for a long time now. So there's, you, you've obviously, um, you've found a, a really amazing way to make this life work that you both want to um, pursue. Yeah, I mean, Nate's taken a, a backseat with the career just because, you know, we've had some kids, so, you know, one, two, three, four, Oh, one, two, three, sorry. No, no four. Um, um, <laughs> no more. Uh, um, <laughs> and, oh, but mind you, we, we, had, we had Zippy, my oldest, when we were down in Melbourne for a little while. Um, mm. You know, um, Zip's mum was, was touring it for a while, so Zip came and stayed with us. So, you know, we have had, you know, not all four at once, but, you know, a couple at a time, and we had Zip there for a while when she was younger. Um, but I suppose I, it just—it all depends on who, what sort of people you are, regardless of what industry you're in. Mm. You know what I mean? It's what you prioritise, and that's why you're drawn to each other. Like you know, we prioritise. Like I mean, I want to be successful in my career, and you know, I'm, I'm still at aspirations of things I want to do, and and so forth. But it's like my my responsibilities and being a father and a partner. You, it's only so far you can wholeheartedly chase your own dreams. You've got mm. to temper that with your responsibility. I mean, it's different. If you're 23 years old, then just go for it. Yeah, yeah. Just go, <laughs> just, you know, tell everyone else to get stuffed and just go for it. But, I mean, you know, I can't do that to my kids. You know, I can't just, you know, so, so the whole American thing is a good example where, you know, I've gone for periods of time. Like one month is the most I've gone for at a time. And, um, it's been hard on Nay, and like one, you know, one of our babies was just born. And I had to go because I had a, a talent deal with ABC over there, and they were basically saying you have to come now, or else mm. you won't get paid, because they put you on a retainer. So I had to go, but the baby was like, I think Lucilla was like three weeks old. Yeah, right. You know, Nay, Nay had had a C-section, so you actually can't really move. Mm. You know, you got a two-story two house, and you, you know what I mean? Like it's just it's that that stuff hard. You know? Yeah. We sort of had to, but if, if I wasn't getting paid, if it was just a pilot season, I probably would have said no. I probably would have gone, no, I can't do it. So the, the thing with America is I sort of said, like, if we get a, if I get a job and it's kind of the money's there, then there needs to be enough money for to be able to bring the family over. Mm. But I, I, I'm not at the stage where, I mean, some other, I've got friends who've packed up and, and gone or they've gone for big periods of time by themselves to try and, search out the work and, and that's 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 great that's what they want to do but I, I kind of can't can't do that on just kind of a dream when look you know I, I can earn a nice living here yeah and be, and be close to my family 
You know, like I, I, I still love to crack something in America because it's, you know, it's just something I, I'd like to tick off the list. Be able to, you know, I've, I've gone for that many pilot seasons and and uh, and had a go and really not not nailed one. So um, it'd be nice to just show my own self satisfaction, just to be okay, tick. You know, got a pilot or did something. Sure. But but it doesn't happen. You know, it doesn't happen. Mm. I guess. Um... I guess the how you define success is kind of relative to what your what you hope or what your aspirations are in life. Um, what how would you define success? Oh, look, it's probably too far. I mean, there's the stuff. There's the realizing your dreams, and your dreams kind of move. Like mine move. I mean, just getting a TV show was like I thought if I ever get a TV show, that'd be amazing. Mm. And you get there, and then you go, oh, I wouldn't mind. A lead role on a TV show. Well, I wouldn't mind it to go on a few seasons. I wouldn't, you know. And then, you know, as I said, I didn't go looking for America. I, I was like, oh, I'm never going to America. And then all of a sudden, you know, I said after Underbelly, you an agent contacts you and said, do you want to represent you? And you go, well, maybe I'll go to America. Mm. You know. So the the goal, the, the goal was sort of changed. So, so obviously, I'd like to do something over there, and that's, you know, that's one sort of aspect of it. But I think. Another sort of big kind of tick for, of success for me was being able to, you know, buy a house as an actor. Mm. You know, and, and we got to a position where, you know, it's pretty comfortable and I don't think even if I didn't have a job for a while, I don't think we'd, we'd ever lose the house. I think we're, we're okay. Yeah. I could go and something else and service the mortgage and we'd, we'd be all right, you know. Um, and that's, that's a big tick to, to actually – be a normal person <laughs> in this industry. You know, have a mortgage yeah. and you know, have your kids have have everything they, they kind of want, and mm. being able to go on the old holiday. And so, yeah, that's that, that's a measure of success is is being able to make a career out of mm. um, what you, what you love to do. Because I know I'm, I know I've got some of your friends that kind of once they dropped out, they've still got agents and they're still going for castings, but they're had to go and kind of diversify what they do. Because they have families and to, to pay the bills, they've got to go and do something else. Because mm. um, even now, I'm a, I've, got, I've got a really good mate. It's really successful in another field, but now, but um, but was really really close to a lead role recently. Um, really really close. <laughs> and but the kind of reality is, you get that show at six episodes. A lot of shows are six episodes these days. Yeah. Can you put a pause on your other job? You know, if someone's got a normal job, can you just go? I'm going to take five months out or four months out mm. and pick it up where you left off. It's sort of, it's hard to do, you know? So, and then, I mean, look at, I mean, Sammy Johnson recently came out and said he's, he's quitting. Now, whether that's, you know, that was just a rush of blood or, right. <laughs> or, or something, but I, was I, there a I, pun I, intended in there? So, um, no, he was, uh, but I saw him and he said, oh, he had had a job for 12 months. Mm. So, cause they, they shot Molly, the same time as we shot Glitch, but we sort of went on air a lot quicker and they held theirs over to the new year. And from finishing shooting that to being on air, he hadn't had another gig bar voiceovers, mm. which is – he's so celebrated for that that role and, you know, people think he's everywhere and he must be doing really well. He's like, there's no second gig, mm. you know. So, it's, uh, so, yeah, a measure of success is having a few gigs in a row and looking at the calendar and going, oh, I've got some work in October. That's incredible, you know. Mm. And I guess it's having that 
continued kind of evolution, as you say, of of what your dreams and your kind of aspirations are and not kind of settling because you never kind of fill that void of what you think is going to fill you up when it's, I guess, those tangible kind of things like those milestones, like if I get a television show or if I get a lead role or if I get a film or if I go to America, it's it's always going to... You get there and you go, oh, you sort of, you become, you've, you've, well, you suppose you've pushed your boundaries out and you've, your comfort zone and, and you go, oh, you feel comfortable and then you strive for something that's more unobtainable or harder or mm. and you, whatever that may be. Maybe it's like I want to write a film or I want to direct something or, you know, a new challenge, you know. So mm. I mean, that's something that I kind of want to kind of try and steer myself into because I'm too old to suddenly go and do something else. <laughs> I don't know what, what, I, what I do. I can make coffees, um, <laughs> and I haven't got enough money to buy my own pub like a footballer. Um, so it's kind of like I've got to sort of future-proof my career a little bit, I think, and yeah. try and because eventually you're not going to have gigs back to back. You're gonna you're gonna be like you know that as you get, and you get older. Like you I mean, I'm 43 now, but the time you stay, you know, marching towards 50, you're mm. gonna be like. You, you're going to be kind of like the main character's dad, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> sort of thing. Yeah. So, so he's not in it all the time. He's in 10 pages of script if you're lucky. Mm. So, so kind of try and work out a way to be involved in storytelling, in telling the film, but having to be on, uh, on the screen all the time. You buddy up with me and we make this Tom Cruise dog film. I'll tell you what. So we'll, we'll, we'll talk after this, but I, tell you, I, tell you, I can see, uh, you know, 2017. <laughs> one man, one dog, <laughs> and a promise. Um, and a master's degree. <laughs> yeah, and a truckload of cash. Yeah. <laughs> Who's your master? Yeah, yeah um, they could be on a road movie, a little bit of Mad Max, the dog side by side, Tom Cruise, with Thelma <laughs> Louise, going, hand into paw. You know, off a cliff. Over the cliff. Yeah. Yeah. Writes itself. I can see it. Yeah, it does. It 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 already has written itself. I've actually got a te- a, a voice to text thing up right now, and the script is finished. Yeah. yeah. Copyrighted. Copyrighted. Uh, Roger Alistair Productions. Done. There you so go. Bought it in the room. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, thank you so much for doing this, Roger. We we um. You, you did mention to me that you've got a new show that is uh, that's just been announced as well. Uh, yeah, so we, we can we can talk about it because it's uh, I've known for a little while, but um, yeah, Doctor Doctor for Channel Nine, which is going um, to be great. So um, a lot a lot of people that I've worked with before. Um, so Claudia Carvin's producing. Um, so on Spirited, she produced as well as um, obviously was the lead in that show so I've worked with her in that capacity mm. before um, and um, she's got a great head for story um, and then Tony McNamara who uh, who wrote Inspirited and also kind of was the key writer on Puberty Blues mm. and Alice Bell is also writing a couple of eps I think um, who wrote for Puberty Blues and Rush I think she's only done one job without me she said um, <laughs> and uh, and obviously Beautiful Lie that was sort of her baby was Beautiful Lie um, so and I get to work with Nicole De Silva again from Rush um, and uh, Ryan Johnson who's uh, who's great I've, I've worked with her a long time ago on a short film and, and um, I haven't got to work with him regularly but um, that'll be great 
So um, looking forward to that. Um, Ten episodes, and um, you know we kick off next week in pre-production. So yeah, wow, is it is it all is it exciting when you get a new gig like this where it is a fresh show and you kind of yeah. get to be part of the inception of it? Absolutely, yeah. Um, I mean. The, the, look, a lot of it's straight. I've read the first kind of three or four draft scripts, um, and they're great. And, I, and that's before everyone comes together, and you know the collaborative process starts with um, you know Peter Salmon's our setup director, who I work with on um, Beautiful Eye. And so you know to see all the to see where the sets are, and to see you know the locations and so forth, and to see it all sort of come together. So that that'll be happening in the next kind of four weeks in pre-production and. You know, we'll obviously do a roundtable read, and I, I haven't really, besides a couple of people that I know, like um, Nicole and and uh, and Ryan, I haven't sort of met the other people, or no, I don't even know of all the castings yet. So, um, mm. interesting, and so it's a bit first day of school, you know. <laughs> but um, but no, it is exciting because you, you you sort of um, you're hopeful. But I, I I'm pretty confident about this one. Just the um the writing is 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 um bang on. So um. Hopefully we, we we strike a chord with people. Very cool. I look forward to seeing it. When when is it expected to be uh, out in the world? Oh look, I'm not sure. Like I'm guessing next. I'm guessing they might next year. Cool. But you never know. It could be this year. It could be next year. Mm. You know, I'm I'm I, that's that's uh that's about my pay grade. <laughs> For <laughs> so, now. Yeah, that's a need to know basis, and yeah. I, I'm not part of those people. Yeah. Right. Um, well, as I said before, thank you so much. I really, uh, really appreciate your time and, and um, thank you for chatting with a relative stranger who approached you out of nowhere to uh, to do yeah. his podcast. Yeah, tapping on the shoulder in that seedy bar was a, was a bit... Uh... Yeah. Well, that's that's how I get all my guests, seedy yeah, bars. Right. It's, well, it's... we were both at that seedy bar at the same time, so I suppose, you know, we had something in common. Yeah. Um, there, there's, there's a final question I ask everyone before... I let you go, and that question is: What makes you silly? What makes me go silly, or um, I, um, what makes me silly? Well, my kids, you know what I mean. Like, I mean, your kids. You can be all serious and talking about your work, and you know, talking to the director on the phone about something you're not happy with on the, in some scene coming up, and then you, you know, your kids come in and ask you to put on a silly hat and a tutu or something like that, and you know, three minutes later you're dancing around the room to. You know, Angelina Ballerina or something like that, <laughs> something like that, and you catch yourself in the mirror and you go, "There we go." So they they bring you back down to earth and they ground you, your kids, and mm. you know, you help, help you sort of not take yourself too seriously. So I, I have to say, the kids, but it's uh, but it's good. It's because it's um, yeah, knock, knocks you out of being too serious sometimes. Yeah, it's a, a really. I mean, I don't I don't have any kids myself, but. It's certainly something that seems to be a through line in a lot of these conversations and a lot of people who, in fact, I think every guest that I've asked this question to who has kids has said, my kids. And I think something I'm coming to understand about kids is that actually they teach you how to reclaim that kind of, that lost innocence and that almost unconditional love of everything and and the magnificence of the world. Which is great for what, especially for what we do it's mm. just because that's what you, you you're trying to do it's so easy to look look at things um through you know well-worn eyes you know um be, become a little bit kind of predictable and and you know in the way you view things and they can just change your perception 
you know, an instant. You go, of course, you know, and that's what we're always trying to do. We're trying to, you know, different characters, trying to look at the world through different different eyes. And it's not just the same set of eyes all the time. So bringing all your own kind of beliefs in um, and, and kids really help that. So, mm, Yeah. Well, I look forward to one day having children and having that experience. Well, there's only one way to do it, you know. There's, uh, <laughs> I'll explain off air. Yeah, yeah, so, cool. Yeah. Um, it, someone told me that it involves a rubber glove. Yeah, that's the practice stage, I think. Ah, oh, right, cool. Yeah. Well, you can yeah. tell you can tell me off air. Yeah, look, there's a, there's a few tips and tricks, you know. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I assume you learned them from Sam on Rush. Oh, um, that's another conversation. That's that's the uh, that's the adult only version. <laughs> Sammy Johnson. Yes. I, I spent a year with him on the road. Oh, did you? Oh, I see. Yeah. yeah, I know. On, not on a unicycle, though. Well, he was on a unicycle. I was in a support vehicle. All oh, right, you went with him on that trip. Yeah, I, I made the doco um, of that. Oh, great. Yeah. Yeah. Was, when, when he when he got to say when he was rocking up, sometimes uh, you know, and I don't think I'm speaking out of turn here, Sammy. Um, sometimes to rush, touch under the weather. Mm. <laughs> to 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 his days of shooting and he he would get slammed he'd have to shoot all those control room scenes in Russia back to back and it was just like <coughs> excuse me um heaps of dialogue you know <coughs> no break in between and he goes I'm going to do this this is what I'm planning on doing riding around you know out while he's having a cigarette outside yeah. you know, <laughs> between camera moves and stuff <laughs> I'm going to ride a unicycle around Australia you know I did it ages ago Melbourne to Sydney and I just sort of looked at him and went Mate, you know, you, you can't do 10 push-ups at the moment, you know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. so it was just, he's got, you know, when he's got to be in his bonnet, he just, there was nothing stopping him. He has the most dogged self-determination. It is it's it is pretty much superhuman. Yeah, and so just all power to him. It's just, what he's just done is just, it's just absolutely incredible. Mm. Um, um, with uh, Love Your Sister and, and everything and, like you know that that thing he said the other week about he wants to give up acting it it's it wasn't for pity or or you know people saying don't Sam it was just he just want he's just a hundred percent you know and I haven't seen him for a little while but you know mm. I, I do follow what he's doing um, he's just a hundred percent you know uh, passionate about that that cause and, and yeah, actually yeah. actually seeing results I don't think he just wants to do it for to have nice luncheons and no and, and you know. <laughs> kind of swan around in that kind of uh, fundraising kind of circuit. He's like, let's let's get some freaking results. Mm. No, he's very um, he's very grassroots based. I don't think he I, um, I don't know if he's had opportunities to like corporatize the charity in inverted commas. But well, he, he did, I did say him come out on a Facebook post and say, let's ditch the fucking pink. Yeah. I hate this pink. Let's go black because you know cancer is serious and it's you know it's not it's not warm and fluffy and you know it's a serious issue and like you know he just he, you know i can see where he's coming from yeah he cuts to the chase yeah um you know he's yeah so so yeah but i'm sure we'll see sammy back at some stage he'll uh he'll, i suspect he'll, so he'll he'll achieve what he wants to achieve there and then hopefully he's uh then got some time to come back because he's, he's he's too good he's very 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 good and um yeah i i don't really know what more to say other than that other than to underline what you said. We're, we're both Sam fans. Yes. <laughs> Johnson Files. Um, well, thank you so much, Roger, and I, and I look forward to having that chat off air about um, how I can have children. No worries. <laughs> I'll, go, I'll go and get the manual. Cool. Thanks, man.